most entrepreneurs fail way more than they are successful, right? So it's like we only hear about the successes. But like before Zoo, I had like, you know, 15 artists that I had like worked with or tried to develop that all failed miserably. And then you get to that one and you're like, okay, this is what separated this from that. So you hope that you take that lesson with you moving forward. But um, a lot of the times you get so like sidetracked because you want success fast or you want things quickly. But the faster you go up, the faster you come down. It's always like that. What's up, y'all? This is episode 44 of the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And for this episode, we sat down with David Dan, the man behind Mind of a Genius Records. The roster includes Grammy-nominated artists such as Zoo, They, Gallant, and Klangstoff. Being a huge fan of the music, Posh and I were super excited to sit down with David to hear about his upbringing living in LA, how he fell into music at a young age, his career as a DJ performing at various nightclubs in LA, as well as around the world, and how he ultimately came to meet and partner with Zoo. We also have a deep conversation about music and culture, the current state of the industry, dealing with trends that are constantly changing and staying relevant as an artist while also being true to the self. We had a great time sitting down with David and hope you all enjoy the conversation as well. Here we go. Hey everyone, this is your co-host Posh and we're on the Founder Hour podcast with our guest David Dan. David, thank you so much for having us today at your apartment here and uh, to sit down with us to have this awesome conversation. No worries, man. Happy to be here. Happy to have you guys. Thank you. So just to kind of kick it off a bit, uh, for those who might not have heard of you yet, um, tell us a little bit about what you're up to right now before we delve into, you know, your early earlier days and your childhood and, you know, how you got here. But I want everybody to kind of know who, who you are. Yeah. Um, so right now, my day-to-day is running a record company um, that I started uh, unofficially 10 years ago, but officially five years ago, mm-hmm. um, called Mind of a Genius. And that takes up, I'd say, most of my time. And then with the record company that I run, I also have a management um, roster of clients that I look after. Um, so I go sort of back and forth between running the record company and helping service the management clients on, mm-hmm. on their day-to-day needs. Mm-hmm. Awesome. David, did you grow up in LA? I did. Yeah. yeah, I was born in New York, and then I moved out here when I was around five or six years old. And, so we're, tells, and we're sitting you know, right next to the high school yeah. that you went to, you said? Yeah. Yes, exactly, right across the street. <laughs> we were talking about it earlier. It's like it's for nostalgic purposes, just kind of wake up and look like, wow, I was there, and now I'm here. It's kind of <laughs> like this. like, Yeah, I, it's uh, funny. I, uh, I didn't do it for nostalgic purposes, but I always loved where I live mm-hmm. because... It's not in the scene, yeah. but it's like just far enough out where you feel like removed. So if I need to go somewhere like downtown or West Hollywood or things that like a lot of people are, mm-hmm. I always prefer to be outside of those areas. Uh, and they just happen to be across from my high school. So it just happened that way. Yeah. yeah. That's so, pretty funny. So tell us about like what your childhood was like growing up in LA. I mean, like my first, obviously 10 years were filled with childhood memories, um, but then very quickly, I'd say like around seventh or eighth grade, it was like filled with like, how do I go get it? Yeah. Uh, mentality, which was starting from me buying shoes in China and selling them on eBay that were like a special edition Nikes and, 
you know, getting burned and ripped off and mm -hmm. then stolen from and then stopped doing that. And then, um, you know, eventually my mom, having a Jewish mother, it was like trying to put me in every type of like class or soccer or karate or, mm -hmm. you know. So one thing she forced me into was piano. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that was around like 13, 14 years old. So I fell in love with piano immediately. Um, and I hated being taught how to play, but I loved like sort of the, the art of mm -hmm. playing right. itself. Totally, totally feel you there. So in my house, we had a piano. So when I started playing, it was like, this is my sort of escape yeah. from whatever, like the noise of the world was going on. So I started playing piano and then that led me into sort of the world of music in general. Um, I fell in love with sort of like classical piano and then I fell in love with dance music because it had a lot of elements of like melody that I had learned from piano. Um, and then fell in love with hip hop and then alternative rock and just sort of like started loving music. Um, so around like ninth, 10th grade, we, uh, we started throwing parties in high school for like our class of friends. And one time our DJ didn't show up. So we were left the day before with like trying to scrabble. And the guy that I threw the party with was like, yo, just DJ, it'll save us like a couple hundred bucks too and we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I started and playing. And you've never DJed before? No, it was my first time ever DJing. So that night we set up to like six in the morning burning CDs and think this is almost, you know, 15 years ago, those CDs were titled like Mind of a Genius, like Moog 1, Moog 2, Moog 3, and Moog 4 because it was basically just like all my favorite artists on CDs. Yeah. And so, so I'm glad you bring that up. So the name of the record company now is Mind of a Genius. Right. Um, is it, so you were inspired by these artists that in your mind were geniuses or, you know, had essentially set like a new tone for music, right? right? So the reason I called them geniuses and I titled the whole thing Mind of a Genius was because I think at the essence of all artists, like a rapper is a poet, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And like a really good singer, all these people that take melody and lyric and put them together, at the end of the day, they're not necessarily artists, but they can be like, any type of messenger of some sort. So I was so obsessed with the messages of the artists that I was in love with, whether it was like a Shaw Day at the time or mm -hmm. a Tom York from Radiohead or a Tupac or um, even like at the time was like a early Tiesto, mm -hmm. you know, or Cascade mm -hmm. with the way that they would make music. So I called it that because I felt like all these people across all genres had this like genius way of, sort of getting their message out mm -hmm. and I just ended up titling like my playlist that I made the CDs from that night Mind of a Genius playlist mm -hmm. so that in my mind I knew like what was each what was on each CD so mm -hmm. I could organize it when mm -hmm. I was playing mm -hmm. so I had like a printed sheet of paper with the playlist on it mm -hmm. and then the CD so when I would put the CD in the player I would know what was on each playlist before right. I would start mixing back and forth this is the days when the like laptops actually had like a CD player yeah yeah, yeah. we were burning CDs off a laptop um, me and my friend Ori, and then we we played the next day, and then I played for my first time in front of like maybe 50, 60 people. And what was, was the response? Uh, it was amazing. It was like the, it was the best night of my life. Yeah, yeah, it was like Afro shirt off, like yeah, just like we got to find that picture. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and did you know how to use like the DJ turntable equipment? Like, or uh, was it more so like? Yeah, I was always into electronics. Yeah, okay. so I knew like. Like even when I was in the car with my mom when she'd be playing music and like DJs would be spinning, yeah. I would always mess with like the treble and the bass yeah. just because I loved it. And back then it wasn't like a button, it was a knob yeah. on like yeah, the yeah. old Lexuses where you could go back and forth. Yeah. So I used to play with that stuff naturally all the time when I was a kid. 
So when I started DJing, I'm sure my mixes were atrocious back then, but like the idea of like transitioning came very naturally mm -hmm. because I was just fascinated by how people like went back and forth on music to begin yeah. with. Yeah. So uh, after that kind of stint, you ended up DJing for like nine years. Is that right? Yeah. Tell yeah. Tell us so about that time. That was the first night for what seemed like the rest of my life, like my rest of my young adulthood life. Yeah. So after that, um, kept throwing parties in high school. The parties kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I kept DJing more and more and more. And then slowly started getting into production and producing dance music because dance music was the easiest to produce. And it was just the genre that I was most in love with for DJing. So I started producing music and making playlists that I would give out at high school called like Mind of a Genius Podcast. So I would make a mix an hour a month and then I'd burn it on like 100 CDs and then I'd just give them out at school. Mm. And everyone at school would be like kept asking me for more and more CDs. And eventually I started my own night in LA um, at a club called, at the time it was called MI6. Now it's called Doheny Room. Mm -hmm. um, the my six was like four clubs before that. So I started my own night and they gave me the upstairs for for like my friends and then the downstairs was hip hop. Mm -hmm. So I started seeing after a couple of weeks of throwing this party and DJing that people just kept wanting to come more and more upstairs, which to me was just an like a you know, an indication of that type of music growing. What was that type of music? It was like at the time it was like um like Avicii's first remix, so like two thousand 11 yeah 2010 mm -hmm. you know think like eight nine years ago so right. you could tell that people wanted four on the floor music yeah. um and the and the open format stuff was sort of like taking a, a dive yeah that was a big time for like edm like i just yeah. remember like everyone coming up back then uh you had swedish house mafia yeah was killing it and all those guys yeah those guys were playing like at the time like avalon right like right. 1500 2000 yeah, person rooms mm -hmm. and it was still like a bubble that never Cross. I don't think Vegas like was even fully into no. the scene yet. They were just kind of Vegas was still booking like DJ Vice, yeah, and like really open format like Stone mm -hmm. Rock AM guys like that. And then when this thing started to take off, I saw it taking off, and my night was blowing up. Yeah. And then that's when like other promoters from other clubs saw that I was building an audience in LA, and I was like seventeen, eighteen at the time. You're still in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like I was exiting high school, so this is like. 11th, 12th grade. And your mom and you know, you know, is approving of this or no? <laughs> it was like she couldn't stop me, you know, like I was so in love with it and I was making money and I was like I was learning business because I was also right. making fake IDs. Yeah. So I was hosting the party, making IDs for the kids to get into my own parties. That sounds like DJ. somebody that <laughs> everybody would know, right? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So did you have, did you did you look up to him? Not really. No, I did it like on the low because I yeah. just like I just wanted to yeah, get yeah. people into the parties. Right. And I knew someone that made mm -hmm. it and he taught me and mm -hmm. um anyway, so so when I was throwing the parties and having more and more people come in, I was like, Wow, this is growing. Yeah. So that's when I started playing other places like Hyde in LA and then a club called Privilege that was open mm -hmm. at the time and um my first big break in LA was I was playing the small room at Privilege, which was like the entrance lobby area. Mm -hmm. And the main DJ's flight got canceled. So he was flying in from New York. Mm -hmm. So they made me play the main room for my first time that night. And that first night I started playing dance music. And it was like the only night where it was like from open format to dance. And people just erupted. Right. So the promoter was like, yo, we want to book you more now. Yeah. And then that was like right around 18, 19. And that was when I 
then started playing like weekly at places like Roxbury or Supper Club mm -hmm. or really building my name at sound even. Yeah. Um, and was that all up to you to like kind of, you know, uh, get your spot in these different clubs or did they just kind of hit you up after like hearing about you from someone else or just being at the club and hearing? I think I pushed a lot, you know, like even when I was DJing clubs myself in LA locally, like whether it was like Truesdale or things like that, like I would always, I would make a bunch of email addresses and I would email the promoter being like, how the fuck did you guys book David? Hmm. Like we've been trying to book him forever yeah. or like, you know, like just hyping you up. myself up yeah. to these people that were booking that. me to make them feel like it was way bigger than it actually was. Yeah. yeah. So, did I you learn that from somewhere? I mean, like, no, it just came like <laughs> I was just came like even from Mind of a Genius, I had like ten email addresses of people that never existed. Right. Because I was DJing, so I needed to like invoice people. Yep. So I had yes. accounting at Mind of a Genius, and yeah. I would email it. Like yeah. you didn't want to look like it was a one man show. Yeah. yeah. So I at like 19, I had like a 10-man show, but it really wasn't, <laughs> you know, there was nobody behind the email. It was David funny one, David two, David three. Yeah. yeah. And people would be like, hey, where's Vanessa? I never met her before, you know? And I'd be like, oh. You have to make up a, a name. She's call oh, she, you know, she got the flu last night. Hey, she this is David. Kind of, yeah. 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 Vanessa. We never did phone calls, right? It was all email. So right. no one really yeah, yeah. needed to jump on right. the call. Right, right, right. right. So it made it, internet made it possible to like basically do whatever you wanted right. to do without people knowing. You know, this story, along with a lot of the interviews that we've done with folks that are in hospitality, or music kind of tells me one thing that a lot of the people that end up becoming you know very big in the music scene start off from these like small LA like clubs and this this scene out here in LA where you know it's I wouldn't say it's very out there but it's also it's very strong you know I think the community of you know the people that go to these clubs I mean Hwood for example now like there's all these young folks that are coming out of there that you know people don't know but in three years, two, three years, you'll be like, oh, wow. I remember hearing about that person at one of their venues, right. you know, playing there, which is pretty awesome that, you know, right. LA has that kind of power in right. music, like right. to influence, you know, the music scene on like a worldwide level. Right. Yeah, it's definitely like a, when you have a community around you, they want it and they want to see you win, mm -hmm. then they can definitely create that swell to get mm -hmm. you there mm -hmm. because everyone is sort of looking at LA for taste and what's happening mm -hmm. around the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if you're, especially if you're an open format DJ, because if you get big in LA in the circuit at the time, then... Can you explain what open format DJ means? Yeah, open format is like you play basically all genres of music. Got it. And you're appeasing to an audience that like, just you're giving them what they want to hear. Got it. So it can be like hip hop mixed with dance music mixed with... Got it. It's just not genre. Just to kind of press you a little bit, does that affect like your identity as a DJ? Like, you know, because yeah. you don't really have necessarily like a genre that you play well that's why i didn't become an open format dj when i first started mm -hmm. because i knew that the longevity of making substantial like a substantial name for yourself was less because you had no way of exactly being identified unless you were like sort of attached to a celebrity right or like played celebrity driven clubs mm -hmm. or like you were sort of living in this bottle service type of audience, mm -hmm. which I never loved because right. it just wasn't necessarily my scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but those guys, they were very, there was a lot of them and the only ones that actually stuck through were one out of every thousand, you right. know, and that's because he maybe was like related to Lenny Kravitz or, you right. know, was the nephew of somebody else. Or, right. So you saw those things happen and I was like, I don't really, I don't have a celebrity cousin or anything yeah. like that. So yeah. it's better if I just build my own name through a genre.
Yeah. So, so throughout this time, I know you're like 18 years old DJing and things are going well. Um, and then I know you went to college and we were talking about it offline. Like mm -hmm. it was a fuzzy time. So tell us, tell us about that time. Um, so yeah. when and, why I was, you, and why you went, like what, what did you study? So when I was in high school, um, and I was starting those nights, I'd gotten a job to do dance A&R for a record label called Thrive Records. And the guy who hired me was like, yo, our dance A&R just got let go of. Uh, we want to sign like more fresh, hot shit. Can we bring you in and, you know, pay you pennies, but you'll have your own office and your own phone line and all that. And I was like, and you're Great. like 18. Yeah, I was 18. So I started working at this label while I was now DJing and doing my own artist thing and making music and um, going to college. So I applied to UCLA and I didn't get in for my first time. And I said, fuck it, I'm not going to go to like CSUN or right. some other Cal State, you know, because mm -hmm. education to me was already broken. Yeah. So I was like, the only reason I'm going to go. Still broken. Right. It's for <laughs> my family. Yeah. Yeah. So, especially my mom, she was like, again, very hard-pressed Jewish woman who was like... Did she want you to study anything in particular? Yeah, for sure. It was, it was law. either law, law medicine. or medicine <laughs> or sure. real estate, yeah. you know, something with a little bit more like... Which, which actually now at 30 years old, I understand why. Yeah. Back then, obviously, I didn't get it. Yeah. But like now I get why they come from that angle. But back then, I was like, no, I'm not doing that, right? right. So, um, so, I, so I went to college and then I was working for this company called Thrive... And I was still DJing and I didn't get in. So I kept DJing that year. And I was studying history in school because it was the only major that allowed you to like really not have to attend as much because yeah. it was like huge lecture halls. Yeah. So I didn't go as much as I probably should have gone, but I still got through the classes. Um, and then I graduated and I walked somehow and, you know, I have no idea what my diploma is today. Yeah. But... I did it and it was basically just for the fact that I said I could do it. And it also taught me time management, I guess. Yeah. Right. I was gonna ask, like, was it difficult doing all like working at I mean, were you working at the label throughout all Yeah. I was working at the label for like a year and a half and they stopped paying okay. me and then I worked for like another year yeah. and then they owed me a bunch of money and then I just then I quit because the label still shut exists, down. This label? Yeah, they they sort they restarted. Oh. Hmm. Um So yeah. yeah, and then uh so you're you're in college and you well, you graduate. Uh, are you still DJing after that or did you have like a set kind of mind on what you're going to be doing? So it's funny because when I finished college um, was right about the same time as I was also DJing a ton in South America. So um, I'd done like a couple of years in a place called Florinopolis and Brazil and Buenos Aires and basically all over the country in Bolivia. I had a song there that really exploded. That was a remix I'd done on YouTube. Hmm. and it had got on the radio there somehow, and they called me to come do a show, and I showed up my first show. It was like 2,500 people with wow. my name on a piece of paper. Like It was just insane. So I did that for a few years, and I realized slowly as I was DJing, so at like 23, 24 now, um, the scene was really taking a, like a hard shift. Yeah. So it went from being this like very beautiful, underground, intimate thing to David Guetta and Akon now putting out Sexy Bitch. Yeah. Yep. And that was the first record I remember as being the song that basically broke in dance music into the mainstream. Yeah. So now everybody knew who David Guetta was. You know, the guy from Love, Don't Let Me Go mm -hmm. now became like top 10 on Billboard. Yep. And for, at the time for me, it was like, okay, so can I go and do that and become commercial? or As a DJ. Yeah. yeah. And make that my career or... Or what's the other option? Which the other option in dance music is either you're like commercial or you're like techno wearing all black in Germany playing Europe. Yeah. And then you make it at 45 years mm -hmm. old, right? So <laughs> none of the two seemed appealing to me. Yeah. 
I didn't want to be David Guetta and I didn't want to be Sven Vath. Um, Who did you want to be? I didn't know. I didn't know. At the time, it was like a very depressing mm -hmm. year for me mm -hmm. where I was like, you know, I was drinking more while playing to get me through my sets because I was having to play stuff people wanted to hear, yeah. which was like more Afrojack-ish and yeah. like squeaky noise type yeah, dance yeah. music, which I fucking hated. Definitely yeah. remember those days. So I was playing that kind of stuff because I had to because I had to make money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it went from being like something I loved to not something I was doing for work. And then when it became something I was doing for work, I was like, well, I'd rather do something else for work, you know, than DJ and be up till three in the morning mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. not even loving it anymore. So I was going to go back to school to become an entertainment lawyer. And at the time, I was like calling all my lawyer friends, like asking them, like, how do I get through law school? Like, is there like a cheat code to just like get my degree and practice and like whatever? I wish. <laughs> so that same week, um, my agent who was booking me said, hey, you got to meet this kid I just picked up. His name is Steven. Um, he's an incredible like producer, but has no real like vision of how, what, what to right. do with his artistry. So we met up, and that was Great the same. Great segue week. into my next question, but I'm glad to, so I'll let you continue. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so anyways, to cap that part off. So basically, the same week that I said like, I'm done, yeah. mm -hmm. my money was going down, and like I was just getting tired, and I was right. exhausted, and I was like, I'm going to take a year off and just like regenerate. Um, that same week, this agent introduced me to another artist that he had just picked up and said, you guys should work together. Um, and then and I guess, he had never heard of him. No. And this agent was stealing from me too. So I stealing? Actually, yeah. So he was booking shows for like, let's say a thousand bucks mm -hmm. and then charging them 2000 yeah. and then taking, taking that extra thousand and then also charging me my 10% fee on my thousand. So why would he even do something like introduce you to steven i think he was just trying to do whatever he because i caught him and i think he was just trying to do whatever he could mm -hmm. to like let like keep me there mm -hmm. by introducing me to whoever he could and he was steven's agent at the time as well or he, he just, was he had just picked up steven so i know people call him zuju what's the right pronunciation zu zu yeah okay so you meet steven uh, and he he's a, a C guy. Yeah. So you guys are semi rivals, but like you probably don't give. Yeah. A none fuck. of us really had any yeah. like college. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Except he did. He actually he was in a frat. He yeah. was in a frat, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what was your first impression when you met this guy? So when I met him, I was like, he had incredible sound design. Um, like the way he knew how to put sounds together was like the same way that like you know a scientist in the lab would make music. It was very like theoretical. Mm -hmm. Um, very like strategic. It wasn't so much like, oh, this sounds dope or like this is cool. It was like you could this this kid just had like a different way of like viewing sound. Like he can probably explain to you why it's good. Like, yeah, like not the, just like it's good. Like this is why it was like the frequencies yeah. and like it was a lot about like the art of sound. And when I first met him, I was like, well, who the fuck is this like Chinese kid who's trying to like sing on records and like yeah. make music and as we continue to like hang out more because I was like, this kid definitely knows how to produce. Like, will he ghost produce for me? Like, will we make a record together? Like whatever, who knows? Yeah, what's the partnership going to look like? We didn't know. It was yeah. just like, we were just, I just knew he was special in, in creating sound and he was also on the same path and drive as me. And what was he doing at the time? Was he just DJing like frat parties and stuff? You no, know, he wasn't, he would like, he had just put out, I guess like 52 tracks called 52 to zoo online mm. um like that no one had really covered but he just like yeah. to give ode to his craft he did a song a week 
Wow. Wow. Right. So and this was like on was it like a SoundCloud back then or was it like I think it was on SoundCloud YouTube? and yeah. he's dropping it like on on like like to his friends and like blogs. And Got he's, it. Yeah. he's like your same age or he's yeah he was my same age yeah so when I met him through this agent, um, looking back now it was like you meet certain people like in your journey in life and I think the most important piece to if I could look back like we'll obviously get into the nitty gritty but was that we were both at the same place at the same time, mm-hmm. which was like this beautiful thing of timing that happened that you can't really control, Right. which was like we both were coming out of school, didn't really know exactly like what was in front of us, but were down to do whatever to attempt to create something big. And was he into music like full-time too? or like did he, had he just, yeah, he was in full-time. Yeah. Um, he had a family that was like, here's a little bit of money and you either make it or you don't with this. We're not paying more than this. And basically I said to Zoo, like, look, you know, I have a little bit of money saved up too. Let's get a studio together. So we went and looked for studios for like a bunch of months trying to find a place to just like make music together. And um, we finally found a place on Robertson that had one room available. And then there's two other guys working in there and then I went in there and I said hey can we just buy the whole thing out like if you guys don't love it here we'll pay you like a thousand bucks to leave or something so and it was already a studio like it was already it was soundproof it wasn't like built out but there was a house they converted into studios got it so we if we uh, I convinced those guys to move out and I gave Steven a room I took a room and then it was an empty room that we were renting to help subsidize the rent Hmm. and then we renovated and like you know basically dumped all my money and like a majority of his money into the space to make it like doable. Did you guys become friends or you just wanted to make music together? I think we went straight into just like making music. Yeah. Like there was no, like at that time in my life, it was like not so much about like having friends. It was like just like make or break where I was like 24, 23, 24. And I was like, I got it. it. Yeah. Like I got to get it now. You know, I'm only going to be this age once. And like I had just wasted, not wasted, but gone through school. So education was like a backup, mm-hmm. but like I hate backup plans. Yeah. And I said, we just, we just had to, we had to make it work. Right. So when we got in the studio together and he had his own room, I had my own room, I'm still producing and he's still producing. And we're just like, like I had known so many people in LA because I was DJing for so long. So, and I kept putting out remixes and just music to keep my name going, but like the scene was going down. And I had this like huge inclination that Deep House was coming up. So, because I was DJing for so long, I knew what people liked and didn't you knew like. The trends. Exactly. Yeah. So, we made an EP um, called The Night Day that we didn't know like what it was going to be. Like, was it going to be like my EP with him, his EP with me? Like, well, you, this is 2014? Yeah. This, well, this is 2013. Yeah. Okay. Because it didn't come out till you know, a year yeah. later. So, we had this EP that I knew was gold, but. I agree. We didn't necessarily know like exactly what it was going to be, but he had found his voice at this point. He had found his lyric. He had found like, you know, we spent 12 hours in the studio together a day. And so what happened was I stopped in my room because we had an AC vent going through the house and I could hear what he was doing. He could do what I was doing. And I was like, this kid's way fucking better than I am. Right? Like, <laughs> it's like a little bit of competition. It's like, oh shit. Yeah. Like, this what is he cooking up it. over there? Yeah. Yeah. He just yeah. had it. Like yeah. everything that I already known about his sound design, like just was more, even more 
Semantic. And he's like singing on these tracks. He's like writing the lyrics as well. Yeah, he's doing everything. And I'm just going in there slowly, like helping him with his shit. And he's coming and helping with my shit. But at a certain point, I was like, I don't necessarily. I was already burned out. Remember, like I had already been DJing for so long. And like this sort of came to me sideways. And I was like, wait, maybe I should stop and like devote my time to him. Yeah. And what, sorry, what, at this time, was he doing like originals and you were still doing remixes? Or were I you was doing, doing everything, too? remixes, okay. originals, and he at the yeah. time was like doing whatever he could too. Right, yeah. But I, we were just like trying to figure it out. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I was like, this kid's got some music. And then mm-hmm. that's when like my A&R ears perked back up mm-hmm. and he had written a song called Faded mm-hmm. that he had he had written in his bedroom and that we finished in his bedroom in two hours right after. Like the the music and the lyrics or just... He had lyrics? written the demo lyric and then we came in, I came into his house in his bedroom at this apartment and we finished it together within a couple hours, like the entire song. That's insane. And that's when I knew that we had a hit. Yeah. Um, because remember going back now 10, like not, yeah, almost 10 years, like my podcast was derived on accumulating as many hits as I could on an hour mix. So from day one of being in music, I always loved like songs that stood out, which eventually became like, you know, pseudo hits or hits mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in their in their genres. And so I had an ear for what a hit was, and then I had worked at a record label. So all of the training that I didn't even realize what it was for came together in this one moment when I met Steven. Yeah, right. so is this when you kind of decided at that moment where you, you know, you realized, hey, like, I'm going to go all in and help him as the artist and me, the business guy, like, is this when you started Mind of a Genius Records or was yeah. it still like not even a thing yet? So that was when I said like this was the official birth, yeah. right? Where it was like, you know, there was other people in the room besides myself to like help legitimize, legitimize it. So, you know, we got a lawyer involved. We got business managers. Like we had a team of people that came in and, and this is way after the fact, but mm-hmm. that's sort of what sprouted it. This is before you guys released uh, Faded? Yeah. So when I knew we had Faded and the rest of the EP done... Um, what other songs are on that EP in Paradise Awaits Paradise Awaits Super Friends yeah. The One um, probably like the, like everything that came after that is great too but that's like still one of my favorites yeah like that, like that whole EP Stay Closer oh, yeah. so we had so we had this EP finished and I knew we needed help marketing this thing yeah. so um, there was a there was a kid that I had known when I was DJing and, and doing my own thing that had just basically manipulated the internet into thinking Cruella was this massive act yeah. after putting one song out. Really? Yeah. Um, and his name was Jake. So I got the music to Jake through a friend. Uh, Jake had passed it around. People loved it. And he came back and said, look, I want to help manage this thing with you guys. So he came in and Zoo, Jake and I did a deal and we knew we were sitting on gold. I was running out of money. So I was like, we need to like, basically the back was up against the wall. Like we have to make this work. Not only make it work, but like we need to get in the game. Like make it work big. Yeah. So we came up with, you know, tons of ideas. Some of that were good, some of that were bad. And then eventually, um, you know, we did that moves like Miss Jackson mm-hmm. thing. That was a medley of four outcast yeah. songs so in one. Good. And that idea was because someone had told Jake like, you know, you, there's like this thing happening at Coachella with Disclosure and outcast you know maybe you guys should do something that like brings those two things together yeah, yeah. and deep house was was again was right. like on the rise and yeah. i knew that was happening and so sing that record that, that song as well right the movie yeah with jackson so in the beginning he had just written the song around one hook mm-hmm. and then i heard it and i was like yo you should go take like 
the best hooks of all their songs yeah. and put it on one because it'd be dope. Like people would freak out. Yeah. And he and day later had it. Um, and basically, we had this song, we had this logo, we had like the idea of hiding him, we had like all these marketing things. So yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. What, where does this like invisibility, like and you know, elusiveness come from? Like, is that something that was strategized and like executed, or it was something that Zoo always wanted? It was totally strategized and executed. So it was like, when I, going back to when I first met him, I was like, no one's going to take an Asian kid singing on dance music seriously. And he wasn't life. offended by that? No. Because he, like, agreed? He knew. He was just like, yeah, you know, like, we got to figure out a way to eventually get there. Yeah. But right now, the country's not ready for it. People aren't ready for it. Like, right. And the scene had no sort of, like, uh, like thread to it, right? Everyone was just, right. like, a DJ with USB sticks. Mm -hmm. So when we came through with, like, the zoo idea with the logo and hiding him, it, like, felt bigger than dance music. So all the dance fans were obsessed with it because they're like, wow, this is like so cool. It's different. It's like bringing ideas from other genres into mm -hmm, dance music. Mm -hmm. And like people really, we, we knew that that was going to be the, or I knew that that was going to be the case because I'd worked in dance music for so long and there had never been anything like that. Yeah. So when he came in and we did the whole marketing thing with moves like Miss Jackson and hiding him and like, you know, he was a huge visionary in like the way that things felt and looked. Um, and then we worked a couple songs leading up to Faded, and then Faded was that moment where it was like, yeah. you know, for me as a as a A and R label manager guy, whatever, um, was the 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 what's the word um, the like reaffirmation mm -hmm. that the only thing that moves in the music business are hits and timing, mm -hmm. and our timing was right, and the song was right, and everything yeah. from there was sort I, of history. I'm curious, like. At this point, you said that you're kind of out of money and, and you have this big record that you're sitting on and you need to market this thing. Where where were you going to get the money? Like, how were you going to market and put all the money that you needed to behind this? Or were you just going to go like super grassroots, just kind of like trying to find all like these hacky ways to get it out there? Um, and also like just to piggyback off of that, like you're, you're starting a label here. I don't know if you were just kind of like focused on one artist or you, you had the vision of like having more artists, but... What were you gonna? How's that money component gonna work? So he had a little bit of money saved up. I had a little bit of money saved up, and after the studio, we had done that and paid rent. And like when Jay came on board, he also was helping us with money a little bit. So under let's just say twenty, thirty grand, right? Mm -hmm. So we said, what can we do with this money to squeeze every dollar that we can out of this thing to create a story to then go and make more money? And Jake had made money with Cruella, so he had a better idea of like what the business was. Yeah. And he's like, guys, I know this guy in Australia that if we get him some money to play it on the radio, um, if it ends up working out, Australia is a huge market for dance music right now. Um, it could really be a big thing. So we ended up going with that guy and shooting a video for like five or 10,000 bucks also. Um, everything before that didn't cost money because Zoom mixed and mastered and made all his own stuff. So there's yeah. no cost with the production. Um, and the song exploded in Australia. This is faded. Yeah. Yeah. So within a couple months, we had our investment back plus, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars that wow. we could now reinvest into, you know, more songs. And did Zoo become a partner in Mind of a Genius Records? Zoo at the time, um, what, we were figuring out exactly like what the business aspect of it was. And then he ended up giving an investment into the label um, as we signed more artists because right. we needed more money. Right. And then he took on the role of like, you know, just like silent investor. Mm -hmm. And I took on the role of majority owner and basically running the operation. Right. But the idea was to always 
sign for my my vision was always to sign guys in different genres mm -hmm. so again it's like going back 10 years like when i was making cds of all these different artists with different genres it was like i'm gonna recreate that or attempt to recreate that now as like an xl or um like a young turks of america yeah because we never really had that here yeah and then i realized why you know five years later why it's very difficult to do in america right but yeah um that was the, the vision was always there. Mm -hmm. So when we first had money, it was just like it was not even a question of how are we going to reinvest this money. Yeah. So so kind of to your point on like um, work, having different genres. Um, what is your approach to you know finding the artists that you want to work with? Like what do you look for? And um, because you're kind of like now you're just like you're, you're it's a bigger pot to like. Right, kind of choose. So right. you're not just focused on one specific niche. So uh, what's your what's your process like for that? At the time um, when I had signed like Galant and they and uh -huh. you know even starting back from Zoo, I think I lost sight of the the market to product yeah. uh, issue that I think all entrepreneurs at some point lose sight of when they have early success. Yeah. So. Like again, going back to Zoo, like he's still probably the biggest success on the on the label because we hit it at the right time right. with the right market, yep. with the right product. Yeah, and and every, I think everything after that was even if it was an inch too late or too early created a problem. So, for example, like Gallant mm -hmm. came at a fantastic time, R and B was coming up, but he didn't come. We didn't come quick enough with a follow up. So. The time that he took off after while touring and all that, there was like a whole new breed of people that came in that sort of took the attention away. Um, so after the lightning in a bottle success with Zoo, there was a lot of things that I saw happen after that that were like, fuck, you know, like it's, it's not going to happen every time mm -hmm. like this, right? right. Like the, a lot of the other things that I signed were like me exemplifying, you know, my taste in music and not necessarily things that worked at the same pace as Zoo did. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like, I, I always wanted to sign different things, but to say that they all worked the same way or presented different levels of difficulty is, like, you know, really really hard to say because mm -hmm. it became harder and harder as I kept going after that. Right. And I think taste just changes so quickly. Like, I think with Zoo, I think the one thing he's done is, like, just created a loyal following of people that are just going to always support his music, you know, whatever the case may be. But we see artists popping out all the time where it's just like, whether they're one-hit wonders or not, like, you just hear about them one time and then you're like, where, what happened to them? I mean, right. we listen, I mean, Pat and I listen to they all the time. But, you know, how do you continue to stay relevant? Right. You know, and, and how do you kind of bring yourself back to saying, okay, you know, I hit it right with Zoo. And, you know, while I was DJing, I was kind of tailoring to my audience. How do you still do that or how do you plan on doing that so the the hard part about running a label and I, I i hit this difficulty again um after feeling it myself as an artist was you never want to be chasing trends right because if you're chasing trends like you just burn out right. at some point as well um and you're probably gonna be late to the party because everyone's exactly already, there, already yeah. there so the thing with with um building these new acts was Again, like if you had this, if you ha if you make this, let's say album or, or EP's worth of material, and you put it out, and the timing is great, then that artist has to want to keep going, mm -hmm. right? They say like mm -hmm. it takes a lifetime to make your first album, which sure, if that's the case, then you have a problem, because 
you never want that to be your only thing that's your best thing, right. which is 99% of the time what happens, right? Most people make a great first album, and then after that, they're like, they're, they're shook, mm -hmm. there are too many people in their ear, like it just, they, they lose sight of what it is. And that happens, I think, with most people in business generally, right? You only have a couple moments in your career where you start something that's massive or whatever. Yeah. Um, so for I think for the rest of the artists, what I saw was this huge differentiator between the reasons why they were doing what they were doing, which then eventually turned into, you know, P&L statements and business, right? Because creatively, the artists that, like an artist like Zoo, went to the studio 20 hours a day, 15 hours a day, that's all he ever wanted to do is continue making music and building out his vision for what Zoo was. Mm -hmm. He had a separation from Steven and Zoo because Zoo was like this personification of his art. Yeah. The other artists that I, not that I only work with artists that I see was it, it's a very difficult thing to separate themselves from the art. Right. So they don't understand like the business side of like how do I market this differently than the person that I am. So those conversations become hard because by the time you're done having those convos, the ship's already sailed. Right. Yeah. And that was kind of going to be my next question was like, I think I read somewhere that you, you wanted to kind of, you don't want Moog to operate like a traditional record label where you had more, more control over the creative. You kind of wanted to let the artists do their thing and, and kind of go off of that. But uh, as you grow larger and as those conversations start happening, like how do you manage that divide of like, you know, this art, the artist, this is their thing and this is how they envision it, but this is what we believe is going to take it to the next level. Um, as the label I think that like one of the things I look for now before talent is work ethic because I've seen very talented people fail a lot of the time because they don't have the work ethic so now when I look at artists the first thing I say is okay before I even look at them I'm saying okay well, where's the market at what do people want right like a guy walked into my office last week get incredible music but I'm like there's sorry there's no place in the market for this it's too early it's too late it's one of those two things but it's not going to work now so but how do you know how do you know timing uh, you just gotta, it's like that to me is like, you know, you can look at what's working, like data wise, which would give you like 20, 30% of it, but the other 70% of it is like just gut instinct. Like, yeah. what do you think people are gonna react to? Right. And there's, I, I myself was too early as an artist with my own music, so I had seen things um, work because of timing and not work because of timing. So by the time we kept putting out music with other artists, I had seen like, we had this band from Amsterdam that probably had the best album on my label called Klangstoff and it only got you know less than 5-10 million plays because it just people like kids people consuming the music weren't ready for it mm -hmm. right. so you got to think about like what does the market want and then give right. them your version of that mm -hmm. versus what I did was like we had a great first thing and then a lot of the things after that were like things that I really loved yeah. but didn't necessarily fit the market at the right time right. Yeah. you know I want to talk about something that you touched upon but um I'd also seen something that you had tweeted recently, which kind of connects, or I'm, I'm connecting in my head right now, is that separation of the artist from the human being, right? Like, you know, Steven Zoo from Zoo, and how that, you know, how that creates, I guess, I don't know if it's an identity problem, or I don't know if it's a, you know, it's some sort of Christ, personal crisis that they have. But have you seen that effect or have you seen that issue in your artists where, you know, that separation between 
them as a just a regular person and them as an artist causes them you know i think you had tweeted something about like mental health and that we're losing a lot of artists right uh, or we're losing a lot of creative you know people have ha, have you seen that in your record or or in your label and have you seen that you know outside in the industry and how do people deal with that so i think all artists painters musicians mm -hmm. we all start because we're making things that help like heal Others. us oh, right. well heal us right mm -hmm. it's like I started playing piano because it gave me comfort, right? Like most people write music because it provides them a level of like sanity yeah. and expression. So it's the, an outlet. Yeah, exactly. The problem though is that when that on two sides, so when that outlet of authenticity becomes so big that you then have to chase trends following it, you're having to change yourself, mm -hmm. which becomes extremely painful, especially if you are your art. Because I don't want to change myself every right. five years. You know, it's like I don't want to change what I'm writing about. I don't want to change like because the kids want something different. Mm -hmm. So that process becomes really hard to manage. Right. And it, be, it can cause a lot of interior, you know, anguish. Sure, yeah. So I think the artists that Drake's, you know, the Zoos, the Skrillexes, you know, like the, you know, the artists that look at it as a business, unfortunately, are the ones that win. Yeah, and, they, and they're just able to adapt before well, the, it even... Well, yeah. I'll say unfortunately because I'm a, I'm a pure creative in my heart right. and my core, so I understand the pain that artists go through of having to keep up with trends because mm -hmm. I was there, and I just quit. So if I didn't quit, I can't even imagine the anguish that came with it after because the money doesn't ever make it feel better anyways. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that makes it tough. The unfortunate, the, the unfortunate part also is that those guys are most of the time even more talented than the guys that are right, better yeah. at business. Right. They just don't have the mindset to uh, yeah. separate themselves. I was actually talking about this last night um, with my brother about like just Drake and and how mm -hmm. long he's had you know he's just been relevant and, right. and the fact that we were talking about the, the comparison with like Eminem for example who like you know people call him washed and like you know right. I mean his last album was pretty good but. Um, why do you think that is like folks like um how, like and i guess you know specific to you and they and these folks that are more so like in the scene now but how do you consistently stay ahead of the curve like how do you define how are you the one that sends that sets the trends like how are you the one that right. gets there before everyone else does i think you got to be like a very um you got to be like a student of the game constantly right like you got to be someone that's like you know, Zoo hits me all the time, like, yo, let's work with this artist who's like a kid who has 2,000 followers mm -hmm. because he just thinks that that sound is going to be next. Yeah. So you got to really want to be that thing. Like, mm -hmm. Drake just wants to be the biggest rapper ever at all times. And and to your point, like, he puts people on, like, new up-and-coming artists exactly. that he believes is going to, and then they become next. Like, they like 21 Savages and all exactly. these guys, you know, um, Blockboy JB and all these people that he just features in his songs or he features on their songs and right. then they just become, like, the biggest artists. Because he recognizes that that sound is next. Yeah. Well, with all this artist, with all the artists that you've signed so far, you yeah. know, the, the question I have is how do, how was that transition like from being that you know purely creative person to now being like basically like a businessman? Right. Um, it's definitely had its like highs and lows for sure. So this is a really interesting time that you guys are catching me because I'd say like two years ago, 2015, 16, we were on fire, right? Like everything we put out was like people, and that was like the blog era yep. and. 
like press was on us and we were like whatever we did was just you know people loved. It just worked just worked people were really into us and then um we took this like very overnight ish turn at least for me it was overnight i'm sure for other people they had maybe seen it that were younger than me for months to come but you know i'd say like the little pump era started and that's more, when more you know the yeah. business just totally took a change over the next six months it was like facebook went from you know all of our users there to now shifting to instagram spotify was obviously continuing to grow in their power apple was starting to try do things mm-hmm. but it didn't really feel like it was as impactful as, as spotify right um and we felt like this huge shift in like people wanting music to people wanting like imagery and colorful hair and yeah. face tattoos and so the business and and you know there was a ton of inflation happening with like numbers on Instagram people buying likes and followers and like you know things became like very hard to identify and the 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 whole genre of the way the whole way music was basically consumed overnight for us changed so we like sort of freaked out and it was like well everything's on Spotify now our artists are a little bit older than like the new generation of kids. The new generation of kids don't give a shit about the generation that came before them. It was like this fresh, basically canvas. And all of our artists were going between album one and two. So it almost felt like album one had hit a demographic that was completely different than whatever the new demo was that we were trying to hit. So we basically like spent the next you know year, year and a half trying to figure out how we were going to stay A, in business, but also B, like, what's important to us and how do we continue conveying that message Mm -hmm. in today's age? Mm -hmm. So um, again, it went from like my heart took me all the way to meeting Zoo and putting out that record. And then now it's basically become a lot more of like brain power and less about like emotional drive. Right. So that balance has become really tough because like, I want to go back to a place where it's more like heart and less mind, but I just can't because I'm here now. And if I was to say, let me just go back to putting out music for fun, then I would have no job. I mean, right? but you called your, your label is called mind of genius. So, I mean, like, although you have this struggle between like mind and heart, like mm-hmm. I think even early on, you recognize that these geniuses like led with the, like, sure, the heart was a part of it, but I think you would have called it a heart of a genius if that's what you thought. Right. But you really called it the mind of a genius because I think the heart has a lot to do with the mind as well. I think the mind and the heart kind of work in tandem. But, you know, I think a lot of these decisions, albeit, you know, can be emotional. You need to have that logic, that foresight, you know, that understanding of what's around you to make that decision with your heart. After, sure, right? sure. So I think that even though that seems like it may be a struggle for you, at the end of the day, I think you realized a decade ago that all these geniuses that you were, you know, inspired by, they had that mind, right? Right, right. And that mind to me is like that separation between yourself and the art, mm-hmm. you know, like being able to create a personified version of yourself that you're not attached to mm-hmm. and that you can observe versus become. Mm-hmm. And that I feel like if I could find more artists that are like that, then amazing, you know, but most artists, 99% of them don't operate that way. Right. So for us now, and also it's become a thing that's scary um, is like music being consumed feels, di- the reason people consume music is very different than it used to be. How so? 
So, you know, for us, it's like when you would necessarily, let's say like you're with your girlfriend, you'd want to put on like, instead of putting on a playlist, you'd put on like an album. Right. Now what's happening is you're putting on a playlist and everything sort of sounds like a vibe mm -hmm. and nothing really permeates or pushes through unless, you know, there's something with the image or the story of the artist that sticks out. Mm -hmm. So the the reason why people listen to music has changed, which has made it difficult for us because like, I don't know that a lot of those types of artists that I was in love with, if they were to come out today, would have necessarily worked in the same way. Yeah. And forget 10 years ago, even two years ago, right? Like if Sam Smith would come out today, would that affect the kids the same way? I, I think no, right? Like if Adele came out today, would that hit the same way? I don't think so, mm -hmm. right? So all these like, even newer artists like that came a little bit a while ago, the type of music obviously has changed, right? But I don't think kids listen to music for lyrics. Right. So I think that people's minds have changed the way that they view music where it's sort of like a filler in the background versus like this is an artist that I'm in love with and I'm right. in love with what they're saying. Yeah, I think that like our generation still has that like love of the artist, love of the lyrics. I mean like I love like for example reggae because I think that, you know, a lot of these songs like have like meaning to it but also right. like the vibes that you have with it and you follow like these specific artists or bands or whatever but i mean i play like zoop for my parents and they like it because i think they understand like the good vibes that come with it and they like know who it is like because i listen to it all the time right but you know these other like you know these little pump kind of people that like pat said like the mumble rap i mean i don't even understand what they're saying so right for me, doesn't like, even matter yeah it's, for me that's yeah. noise like right and i think that the younger generation i don't know if they're gonna change but at one point it's like you know, we're all educated here sitting on this table. So I think we understand like on a deeper level, like what goes into making music, like right. the art of it. Right. And I, and I'm, I'm almost uncertain that mumble rap is art. It's not poetic. Like, you know, sure. like you called like rappers poets. I agree. What we see these days, it's not really poetry. Like I think those, the generation before us, like the Tupacs that, you know, when they said things, it made sense. Like the Nazis, like they said things that right. you can resonate like with, you know, right. it's, it's something that you can understand and like apply in your life as opposed to right now you're like what is going like what is going what's like this noise that's coming out well that's the thing is i also feel like a lot of the the music is always a reflection of youth culture right mm -hmm. and youth culture is driven by what's happening in the world in their world outside right. of music so it's like what's happening with the presidencies what's right. happening with you know just naturally like gaming culture exactly like, yeah. there's all these things that they build off of that then bleed into why they like certain types of music right so the fact that they love or they appear to love these trendy like smoke perps and you know little xan and all these things like look it it, it obviously is a trend right yeah, yeah and for sure. there's I, been, I, I really hope so yeah yeah <laughs> you know there's it, it it is because like even in like mid 2000s we had like yin yang twins yeah. and you know yeah. shit like that so like <laughs> this isn't the first time that we've had music that comes from this sort of like migos type place it just seems bigger than it ever has been because we see the numbers on Instagram, right? Yeah. Right? You see the numbers everywhere. Whereas before, Ying Yang Twins didn't have a Facebook page, yeah. you know? Like, these radio artists didn't have these pages to show you exactly how many kids at the moment like their shit. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing is we're so caught up, or I'm so caught up, and people in music are caught up in like, wow, this is so big. But then... I think once I go through this cycle, which will be my first real, like, I'd say depression in music um, as, a, as an industry person, then I'll be able to come out on the other side and be like, right. okay, we came out and it, it went back. I think the key is just sticking to, and, to it and through it. Yeah. 
That yeah. And, that and also, like, I mean, just as far as the sound goes, like, I, I know just dance music does change quite often. Yeah. Like, the, the, the yeah. feel, the style. Um, for an artist like Zhu, um, how, how, do, how do you change your sound but also stay true to your your roots and your, your right. creative I think you know. the the easy the way the easier part for us is that he sings yeah and his it's voice diff- is so yeah. when I first found out that he was the one singing I was like you gotta be fucking kidding me yeah I had no idea at first most people didn't know I thought he was like just featuring people that got no credit I was like damn like that's ballsy like no well one sometimes like for example working for it working for it could have been like I mean it sounded they sound alike like sometimes right. like they and his, or good life right. which is like I, I yeah. think I was telling you it's like literally my top five favorite song of all time yeah I listen to it probably like five times a day yeah um, cool. me and actually one of our close friends Autumn who probably will be crazy listening to this episode it's like our favorite songs he was at the concert I think last Friday night at the shrine uh, or Saturday night um, but I didn't know like I, I don't know if is Zoo even on that song yeah yeah, he produced it. Because um, there's like many different voices. Like, voices. Yeah. He's, well, he's really good at basically like producing a record from like that standpoint. Like this voice works for this. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, what does he have in mind when he's like producing these things? Like, because they all sound like good. Right. You know, like I feel like you just know good music when, and you have to like it. really listen. Like I love how he incorporated like poetry into yeah. like good life. Like, like I mean, like life the whole, is all about you. Yeah, right. So, I mean, yeah, you have to really like really listen to it. I think he has like when he makes a song, or when any great artist makes a song, they're trying to create a world within that song, and because he's so talented technically, he's able to craft a world that you're just obsessed with right off the bat. He knows like the extent that he can take it, yeah. and like he, he can see the whole floor. It's and like, he's also yeah. very uh, he listens, you know. Yeah. Like if I give him a note on a song, it's changed. You know, it's not like a conversation mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, well, I don't think so or whatever. So most artists you'll see like don't really listen to anyone but themselves. He's very open to critique from people he right. trusts. And I think those are the people that end up like whether it's in music or business or in life end up succeeding because they're open to change. You know. Right. Like, you know, these people like the Lil Pumps or the, you know, the Migos type artists that you mentioned, that's all they're like, they're limited by their like, you know, talents and limited by what they know and can do. Right. As opposed to somebody like Azu who's dynamic, who sure wants to stay true to himself, but can alter, you know, not his sound necessarily, but alter the way he's doing things or even just alter the marketing perhaps. Like maybe it's like a marketing thing. It's not a sound thing. Right. It's more like, like you said, an imagery thing. Right. Because that's all it is. Like we see it with like our podcast. People want to see people. Like people want to see other people. They want to interact with human beings. Right. You know, and like perhaps that invisibility, like although it worked, you know, maybe what, five years ago, four or five years ago. Right. Maybe now it is working against you guys. I don't know. Probably, no, it doesn't work today. That's why he's like starting to open up more. Yeah. 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 So where do you see the future of Mind of a Genius going and where do you see the future for you in terms of, you know, maybe going beyond music? Um, I think the future of the label is always going to stand behind great artistry with great messaging and whether that ends up working huge or working not huge will still always be behind like that sort of like perspective right. of the type of artists that we get behind our deals are changing rapidly so we're no longer doing traditional record deals um we're doing more like shared partnership deals where we do everything in-house for artists mm-hmm. management label publishing whatever needs to take off um so I'm, I'm happy about the way the business is changing um and you know figuring out how to again globally break stories back into america so um, that was the thing that we did really early on with Zoo that we haven't really done a lot of lately. 
So going back to that, um, building in territories like the UK and Australia and Germany, and then having that bleed back into the States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think for myself, like, you know, it's, it's, it, it changes so very often. Like I'm excited by so many different things. Um, so having to like control the thoughts to stay focused on breaking one thing at a time. Um, and I think for me that the, I just want to learn to be more patient as I get older mm. and like, I know that money doesn't drive me and I know that like success or like validation from my peers doesn't drive me anymore. So I think going into my thirties now, it's a very different perspective of the things that I want to do. Um, and they don't necessarily involve like building the biggest thing ever. Um, I think I'm going to take this label with me to the grave um, and pass it on to my kids. But I think the rest of the things that I want to do in life aren't necessarily so like entrepreneur based because as you mentioned, like, you know, off this chat, like being an entrepreneur is not fun. Um, And I think a lot of people, obviously you want to work your own hours and you want to like, you know, be your own boss and all that type of shit. But um, it's an extremely mentally taxing, taxing exactly um, place to be, you know, because it's very easy to wake up one day and then all of a sudden the business has changed and you're like, you, you have to adapt. Whereas like, you know, that's the pressure that you already put on yourself. Yeah. um, yeah, And that's pressure that's combined with, you know, your family and your personal life. And there's enough going on there most of the time for us where like, being an entrepreneur is, is hard and the money doesn't fix things either, you know? Like just because you're throwing a bunch of money at something, if the market's not ready for it, it's not going to force right. it through. Right. And I've seen that happen plenty of times working with a major company. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, it's being patient and then knowing that like you don't always have to push. Yeah. It's better to almost wait till you have those like serendipitous moments where you meet somebody and you're both at the same place at the same time and then you start something together because you know, you're, you're at that place together because mm-hmm. that's more important to me than the idea because you can make an idea work if you're at the right place at the right time, but you can't make an idea work if you're not at the right place at the right time. So it's like the patience goes back toward waiting for that mm-hmm. thing to occur while still remaining proactive in whatever like your heart's journey is, mm-hmm. whether that's making music or, you know, painting or whatever it mm-hmm. is, but realizing that the universe has way more power than you have, right. you know? Most entrepreneurs fail way more than they are successful, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like we only hear about the successes. But like right. before Zoo, I had like, you know, 15 artists that I had like worked with or tried to develop that all failed miserably. And then you get to that one and you're like, okay, this is what separated this from that. Mm-hmm. So you hope that you take that lesson with you moving forward. But um, a lot of the times you get so like sidetracked mm-hmm. because you want success fast or you want things quickly. But the faster you go up, the faster you come down. It's always like that. That's a good point. What does David Dan do when he's not doing music? Um, I play basketball a lot more than I used to, so I'm happy to like physically get moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been getting a lot into like um, like theories of like meditation and um, like basically like stress management. Yeah. So anything that can like you know, I've gotten closer to religion and like faith. Um, family, obviously I have two nieces and nephew. I spend a lot more time with them than I used to. So trying to like really balance the two, um, and also like put myself in places of just like serenity and like peace as much as I can, because 
being in the music business is like extremely taxing as I'm sure like a lot of entertainment businesses are because it's like, so you're not like developing a building and selling it mm-hmm. where there's no like feelings involved. You're dealing with people every day. Mm-hmm. So um, just trying to like maintain a level of like thickness right. through and whatever basically like does that for me. So like yoga and like, you know, things that like make you become present without having to like think about whatever work is bringing mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. because work never turns off for us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Never. So, you know, when I go on vacation, it's not, it's never really a vacation because yeah. I'm on my phone. Yeah. So like you're, whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you work for somebody else, you're still a slave to the money. Right. So I think separating those things from myself, like separating the hunger for success from just like the essence of being is tough as you get older oh, yeah. you know because yeah. you hit 30 you're like dude i'm getting older like you know like i need i need you think that you need these things that you don't need but like it's always around you so it's like clutter decluttering mm-hmm. is basically like what i do all my time off yeah, yeah. from working i love that love yeah well david this has been awesome man i'm, I'm so excited we had a chance to sit down Thanks, with man. you and uh, as posh mentioned we're huge fans of the music and can't wait to see what comes next uh but you know drew they Talent, everyone you have. So, um, and, thank you. And hopefully, more artists. So, thank you. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks, man. Thank thanks you guys again. Thanks, guys. Thanks.